Well, we begin our Reformation series today, and we launch into a series that I've entitled Here I Stand, and you might be wondering what in the world is a Reformation. Well, Reformation was a movement that was launched 500 years ago. In fact, this October, the last weekend in October, we recognize the 500th anniversary of what is known as the Protestant Reformation. It was 500 years ago this October that God raised up an Augustinian monk by the name of Martin Luther. His name is actually on the front of this pulpit in which I preach. And it was Martin Luther that God used to spark what is known as a Reformation as God raised him up to protest what he felt in his mind that the church had drifted away from their original calling and vision to preach a gospel by God's grace alone, to preach a gospel that is accomplished through the finished work of Christ alone, that is received through faith alone, and that is based upon the word of God alone, all done to the glory of God alone. And that sparked a movement that would not only transform Martin Luther's native Germany, but the continent of Europe and eventually the entire world. And we recognize this Reformation 500 years later. The reason I called this sermon series, Here I Stand, because it was while Martin Luther was on trial by both the state and the church, if you can imagine, he was on trial and the emperor, Charles V, asked Martin Luther, gave him one more opportunity to recant. Will you recant what you believe? And Martin Luther says, no, my conscience is bound. And unless you can show me otherwise, according to the Scripture and Scripture alone, Martin Luther is credited with standing firm against the world's most powerful institution at the time by saying these words, I cannot recant. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Amen. And so for the next few weeks, we are going to be diving deep into what were the battle cries of the Reformation? What were those things in which Martin Luther and the other reformers that followed after him, what were those things that allowed them to take a stand, as I said, against the world's most powerful institution, to take a stand in such a way that we still feel the effects of that great stand 500 years later? And so our passage for this morning is two simple verses from Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. But it was these two verses that converted that young Augustinian monk 500 years ago. It was these two verses that changed Martin Luther's life. It was these two verses that changed the church. And it was these two verses that ultimately changed the world. Hear the Word of God as it's found in Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. 
The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of our God, the Word of our God that we stand on alone, it stands forever. Amen. On August 21st, 2017, millions of Americans went absolutely crazy over the solar eclipse. Children got out of school and people traveled far and wide. People got special glasses just to simply encounter a once in a lifetime experience where the sun would go dark, where there would be an eclipse over the earth in those regions in which the solar eclipse was fully experienced. But it was 500 years ago that the church didn't experience a solar eclipse. But the church 500 years ago was experiencing the darkness of the gospel. The gospel and the light of the gospel that turned the world upside down 2,000 years ago by the life and the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the church was experiencing an eclipse that the gospel was no longer being faithfully preached, that great and glorious message that man can be saved by grace alone, through faith alone, through the finished work of Christ alone, according to the word alone, to the glory of God alone, that message had been eclipsed. And unfortunately, it was no longer found preached from many of the pulpits that had a long and glorious history But it was through Martin and Luther and God raising up this man 500 years ago that brought about a resurgence and a revival and what we call today a reformation, a resurgence of the true gospel, that good news that we are declared righteous with our Creator by grace alone, through faith alone, on the Scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. And briefly this morning, by way of introducing this sermon series and this idea of the Reformation, I want us to look at these two verses. As I said, these two verses found in Romans 1 that changed Martin Luther, that changed the church, and ultimately changed the world. There was three things in particular I want us to look at in these verses. Three things that were rediscovered as Martin Luther and those that followed after him Reengage once again with the Word of God alone. Three things discovered in these verses that changed the man and started a movement that we still feel the effects of today. The first thing I want us to see in the, these two verses that we read, Romans 1, 16 through 17, is found in the first part of verse 16. Paul writes, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. The thing that was rediscovered in the Word of God was that we can have a confidence, that we can have a new confidence. That's the first thing that was rediscovered 500 years ago, that our confidence does not come by popular opinion. Our confidence is not based upon man and his opinion. Our confidence is not even based upon the institutions of our culture and of our world, but that Paul is saying, and it revitalized and gave a confidence, a new confidence to Martin Luther. That's the first thing that was discovered, a new confidence that Paul was able to say, I am not ashamed of the gospel. You see, 500 years ago, when God called Martin Luther for such a time as this, 
God called him to post what is known as the 95 Theses. They were basically 95 objections that Martin Luther had with the institutional church at the time, the Roman Catholic Church. And he posted these 95 objections to the castle door at Wittenberg. And these 95 objections went viral. And the Pope instantly called Luther a heretic. In fact, he used these words, he called Martin Luther a wild boar in the vineyard of Christ with beliefs that were scandalous, heretical, and dangerous. Martin Luther did not recant. He did not back down. In fact, when he was called and commissioned by Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor at the time, he stood before the Holy Roman Emperor and the church, and they demanded him, as I said in the introduction, to recant. And we have those, that famous line that I read, Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Amen. You see, the gospel and the gospel alone was what Martin Luther rediscovered 500 years ago, that we can have a confidence that is not based upon man, that we can have a confidence that is not based upon this world or based upon common culture but we have a confidence that rests upon the Word of God. It was as if Martin Luther was saying, God has spoken, it is finished. God's Word has spoken. That is the only confidence I need. So no matter whether you persecute me or put me to death or you ask me to recant, I will do no other other than preach the Gospel that I have been called to preach. What gave Luther such authority? What gave Luther such confidence? It was the truth of the Gospel. It was the truth of the Word of God. Martin Luther was well aware a hundred years earlier what happened to the pre-reformers like John Wycliffe, who was declared a heretic. He was well aware of men like John Huss, who was literally burned at the stake. He was well aware that of what was at stake by refusing to recant, but he says, God's word has spoken. I can do no other. Martin Luther said, I know the truth. I will not recant. I can do no other. And I want us to ask this question this morning. Is that how we live our lives today? 500 years later, do we live our lives and when we are confronted with the decisions of life, both big and small, do we confront those decisions and make those decisions with one authority in mind, the Word of God? That we do not look to popular opinion, that we do not look to opinion polls, that we do not look to the news, that we do not look to the cultural institutions of our day, but we go, no, God's word has spoken and that is enough for me to make my decisions. A confidence that stands up to popular opinion regardless of the circumstance, regardless of how great the temptation it is to bend or to buckle. We are a people that have a greater confidence that is based upon God's Word and God's Word alone. Seminary professor John DeWitt was well known for saying in his seminary classes, we do not need mealy-mouthed, 
fuzzy thinking, compromising preachers who first thought is whether what they will say will offend their congregation or the community at large. But we need men of God, preachers, that first commitment and first impulse is obedience to the Lord in whose service they have been enlisted, to whom they belong and to whom they must give an account. But good and kindreds go. This mortal life also. The body they may kill, but God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. A new confidence. The second thing that this passage helped do was the rediscovery of a new power. Martin Luther was born in 1483, and in 1505, he was traveling, and the story tells us that he was traveling in a light, uh, during a great thunderstorm, and a lightning bolt strikes him down, and he prays, cries out to Saint Anne, and he says, save me, I will become a monk if you save me, and he lived up to his promise. But through his journey of becoming a monk, He wrestled with every day the power to change, the power to be made right with God. It's well known that Martin Luther could be found in his room screaming out to God, literally throwing the Word of God against the wall, saying, I can never attain the righteousness that is required. Martin Luther spent his early years as a monk agonizing. Where could this righteousness be found? He would literally read Romans 1 and miss the Gospel. He would say, how could man ever appease God? God will forever be angry with me. He will never be happy. How could I ever have the power to change? And we long for this power as well. The power to change ourselves, the power to change our spouse, the power to, the power to change our kids, right? And our colleagues. We long for the power to change, just as Martin Luther did 500 years ago. And it was through this passage that he rediscovered that there is a power and it does not reside in and of yourself. There is a power to change. There is a power to appease the judge. But the power is in the gospel. It says the second half of verse 16, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It is not based upon the power of man, but it is based upon the power of God. He rediscovered a power that did not exist in and of himself, but the power was from God and God alone. The power to change, the power to appease the judge. I recently heard of this story of a owner who lost a dog and he offered a great reward for this dog and the the notice for whoever finds the dog uh, read like this, my dog has three legs, he's blind in the left eye, he's missing his right ear, his tail was broken, accidentally neutered, and he answers to the name Lucky. Probably not the right name. But why would an owner ever love a dog like that? The question is, why would God ever love someone like you and me? If the Scriptures are correct, and there is no one righteous, no, not one, 
And if we are honest with ourselves and we see our deficiencies, we see our own sinfulness, we see our own brokenness, then the miracle is not that we are not ashamed of the gospel, but the true miracle of God is that God is not ashamed of us and that God is not ashamed of you. Paul, think of the testimony of Paul alone. Before Paul is transformed and regenerated, Paul is what? He's a terrorist who has been called by God, at least in his own mind, to go out and murder and martyr Christians. And all of a sudden, he has this life-transforming experience. And he goes from being the chief martyr of Christians to what? To be the great leader of the church of Jesus Christ. There is power in the gospel. There's only one explanation for how a life can be dramatically transformed. There's only one explanation for the power to transform a life like that. And there's only one power to change your life. It's the power of God into salvation. A new confidence, a new power. And then lastly, Martin Luther discovers a new righteousness. What do I mean by that? Verse 17 says, for in it, speaking of the gospel, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. As I said earlier, Martin Luther hated Romans 1. And when he would think about the righteousness of God, it would cause him to lament. It would cause him to agonize. How could man ever achieve a righteousness that could appease God? And he fought with it and he wrestled with it. And then he discovered in this passage that there is a righteousness and the righteousness is not of himself, but it is righteousness that comes from God himself. In fact, Paul would later write in Philippians 3, 8 and 9, Indeed, I count everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of Jesus Christ my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, listen to this, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends upon faith. You see, what the Reformation did was it brought us back to the gospel. It brought us back to the word of God that says there is not a righteousness that exists within you that has the ability to make you right. And we all long to be made right. We want to be made right with our spouse. We want to be made right with our kids. We want to be made right with our mother and father. And ultimately, whether you realize it or not, we live our entire lives trying to appease God, wondering, will he accept me as righteous? And what the gospel tells us is that there is a righteousness that appeases God that there is a righteousness, but it is not a righteousness of your own. It is the very righteousness of God. You see, every religion attempts to be made right with God and requires a righteousness that is of your own. And it's up to you. But it is the message of Christianity and the message of the gospel that says there is a righteousness, but it is produced by Jesus and Jesus alone. You see, the gospel is this, that God saves sinners through the person and work of Jesus and Jesus alone. It is his perfect obedience on our behalf that makes us right. That makes us right 
indeed with God. Ravi Zacharias, the great apologist and great author and teacher, tells of this very unique experience while he was in the Middle East. He had the unique opportunity to meet with one of the founders of Hamas, Sheikh Talal. And Ravi Zacharias tells that during this dinner with the Sheikh, the leader of Hamas, that they had all gone around telling stories about their life and talking about their own experience. And Ravi Zacharias says, Sheikh Talal gave us a great meal. But then he started telling stories about his life. He told us about the sobering eight years that he served in prison. He then went on to talk about how his children, one by one by one, had been called by God and lost in suicide bombings. But Ravi Zacharias says, when it was my turn to ask a question, he said, Sheikh, Forgive me if I'm asking you the wrong question, but please tell me, what did you think of the suicide bombing and sending your children out like that? After he finished his answer, Ravi went on to say, Sheikh, you and I may never see each other again, so I want you to hear me. A little distance from here is a mountain upon which Abraham went 5,000 years ago to offer his son And as the axe was about to fall, God said, stop. Do you know what God said after that? The sheik simply nodded his head, no. God said, I will provide. He nodded his head and I said, and very close to here is another hill, sheik. And 2,000 years ago, God kept his promise to provide. And how did he provide? By sending his own son, But only this time, the axe did not stop. He sacrificed his own son. Ravi says the sheik just stared at him. The room was absolutely silent. I said, I may never see you again, but I want to leave you with this. Until you and I receive the son of God that was promised, we will be offering our own sons and daughters of the battlefield of this world for land and power and pride forever. Ravi says the sheik's lips began to quiver as he was sitting right next to me. Nobody had said anything after that. Nobody needed to. And after walking out with tears in his eyes, Sheikh Talel went over and shook everyone's hands except Ravi. And when he got up to Ravi, he embraced him and did the unthinkable in that culture. He kissed him and said, you are a good man. I hope we will see each other someday. I hope that we'll see each other someday soon. You see, when we understand the unparalleled message of the gospel that was brought back to light and life 500 years ago, it will change everything. In Hinduism, you pay with karma. In Islam, you never know whether the good deeds will outweigh the bad deeds. But the grace of Jesus Christ comes to you and says, if anyone comes to me, he will not be cast out. It's the message of the good news, the gospel that changed a man. It changed the church. It changed the world. And it's the message that has the power to change you this morning. If you would simply receive Jesus. And Jesus alone, knowing this, that by grace alone, through believing in Jesus Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, you too.
can be saved. You too, this day, can receive the power of salvation. Would you receive Him today? And may you walk out of here as Martin Luther walked out 500 years ago, a man forever changed his entire life and world, turned upside down. And this is my prayer. As we enter into this series and we enter into a time of talking and reflecting about the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, I pray that it is simply not a reflection over the past 500 years, but I pray that this series and this conference that we hold in October will be used to serve as a catalyst to launch a new and second Reformation. I pray that God would use this series and this 500th anniversary to simply not reflect upon the last 500 years, but launch a reformation for the next 500 years. And by His grace and for His glory, may it begin right here.